Well, hey, everyone, thanks for being here today. Uh, I just found myself sitting back there just feeling extreme gratitude, gratitude that you would show up on this holiday weekend, also grateful for the freedom that we have as a country, especially as we approach uh, the 4th of July, and just reflecting on all the reasons that we have so much to be grateful for. And I'm also grateful to those of you online who didn't invite us to your cabin or to spend time with you on your boat on a lake. No big deal. All right, we still love you. But speaking of which, there are really two kinds of people in the world. There are cabin people, okay, and there are not cabin people. There are cat people and there are dog people. There are Bitcoin and cash people. There are zero email inbox people and those with 10,567 unread emails. You total psycho. What's wrong with you? There are vegans and carnivores. Seriously, two of my really good friends are one of each, one who swears that eating meat will kill you and the other who swears that eating meat is the only way to a healthy life. I sent them this article that says, Bear Grylls embarrassed by past vegan diet, says he's never been better with all meat diet, just to kind of throw some shame on, on one of those guys. But, <laughs> but there are indeed two types of people who have a particular disposition a leaning, a way that they see the world, and it's those who see the glass half empty versus those who see the glass half full. It's those who immediately see what's wrong, what's missing, or what the problem is versus those who see what's right, what's there, and what the potential is. It's the pessimist and cynic versus the optimist. Now, pessimism and cynicism aren't exactly the same, of course, but they're close cousins that I'm lumping together and using somewhat interchangeably in this message because both stand opposite to optimism. In preparation for this message, I read a great book called Why Do I Do What I Don't Want to Do by Jonathan Pakluda, and I owe a ton of credit to him because of how a few of the chapters impacted me personally and influenced this message because the truth is the way we navigate any situation will be determined by whether we view it through a pessimistic or an optimistic perspective. It's like those old Debbie Downer clips on Saturday Night Live. The premise was fairly simple. Debbie, played by Rachel Dratch, would appear in different social settings, such as dinner at Disney World or a family party, and she'd interrupt these joy-filled conversations with negative declarations stories or facts that were depressing. For example, one skit I watched while sitting at a breakfast at Disney World, these characters uh, went around the table excitedly saying things like, I'm so excited to go on Space Mountain. I can't wait to go to Country Bear Jamboree. I'm gonna go to every country in Epcot and say hi in their native language. And as they're all high-fiving each other with excitement, Debbie Downer interrupts and says, did you guys hear about that train explosion in North Korea? The media is so secretive there where they may never know how many people perished. And then they play this video. Everything's going your way. And along comes Debbie Downer. A car accident or killer bees. No beggar to spare you. Debbie, please. But you can't stop Debbie Downer. Yeah, you can't. And what made Debbie so funny wasn't just that little bumper video or the trombone that would play or the funny facial expressions. No, what made her funny was, well, that I think people could relate. Because truth is, we all know somebody like her, 
Somebody who always gives the reason why things aren't going to work out, why the situation is worse than you think, or why the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And sadly, maybe that person, at least at times, well, if I'm honest, it's me, but, but maybe it's also you. See, this is one of those things that's easy to see in someone else, but it's much more difficult to recognize when it's us. That's why we laugh nervously at characters like Debbie Downer. It's because, unfortunately, well, we can be that person. And what does it mean to be cynical, pessimistic? It's to have a general distrust of others. It's to have a negative outlook on the situation. It's a complete lack of faith or hope, and it's concerned only with one's own interests. See why cynicism and pessimism can destroy so much? I mean, who wants to be friends with someone who never trusts them or only sees the worst in every situation? Who wants to promote someone who never shows interest in others or ever sees the silver lining? See, this perspective destroys hope. It negatively affects our relationship with others. And most importantly, negatively affects our relationship with God, maybe more than we realize. On the other hand, what does it mean to be optimistic? Well, it's to have a general trust of others. It's to have a positive outlook on the situation. It's to be full of faith and hope, and it's to value others above themselves. If there are indeed two types of people in the world, what type of person would you want to most be around? What type of person do you think God is most inclined to use. Part of the reason I'm sharing on this topic today is that full confession earlier this year, around February and March of this year, I was living with so much pessimism. Every, everything seemed terrible. Now, maybe it was the winter blues, and for those of us who live in Minnesota, the Midwest, it was a long, difficult winter. But I went through a season where more often than not, I saw the worst in people. I obsessed about what could be better, and I talked more about what was wrong in my situation and what was right. And as a husband, a father, a pastor, and a leader, my cynicism was not only weighing myself down, it was weighing people down around me. But what I came to realize and learn over the last several months is that it's not the circumstances that determine whether we live pessimistically or optimistically. No, it's based on whether we choose to see the world through God's perspective or our own. By the way, living with optimism is different than happiness. As one pastor said, happiness depends on the happenings. You know, the twins win, we're happy. The twins lose, we want to fire Rocco. You know, you lose 10 pounds, you're happy. Not liking what you see in the mirror, unhappy. You get it. But optimism is not based on the happenings or circumstances. Optimism is also different than being an idealist because I know some people are already objecting to this message and say, thinking, John, I see the glass half empty because I'm a realist. I've lived too long. The world is only getting worse. We're all getting older. Have you seen my wrinkles? Then we will die. What's there to be optimistic about? I'm just being real. Now, let me be clear. Being an optimist doesn't mean we're supposed to deny reality or that we live with some sort of naive, idealistic worldview. For example, if something difficult happens, we don't have to pretend like we're happy about it. 
Sadness and anger are not the opposite of optimism. Instead, here's what I think living with optimism is like. It's like searching for that clear view while driving in the middle of a snowstorm. No one wants to be driving in a snowstorm, but if forced to, we, we scrape off the snow and ice, we turn on our lights, we, we lean a little forward, we adjust our wipers onto high, we move with hope that there is better weather, better roads, and a final destination ahead that we'll get home safe and sound. See, optimism is seeing the hope and potential in any and every situation. With that being said, there's really no better example of living with an optimistic perspective in the middle of difficult circumstances than, than the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look most specifically at the letter he wrote to the church in Philippi, which we now have in our New Testaments uh, called Philippians. And he starts off by saying in Philippians chapter 1, verse 4, I always pray with joy. I'm like, always, Paul, really, with joy? I mean, I could barely pray this morning, let alone with joy. Now, mind you, you need to know, Paul is writing these words, this letter from a Roman prison in 62 AD. And he's not just visiting, okay? He's a prisoner there. Now, how did he get there? A few years prior, he'd been doing ministry in Jerusalem, but was falsely accused and arrested. And he was then taken to Caesarea where he stood before several trials and nothing really happened in those trials. So as a Roman citizen, he appealed his case to Caesar where he could face trial in Rome. So Paul was put on a ship as a prisoner, which was heading to Rome. Get this, that ship sunk. Fortunately, he didn't drown, but eventually did make it to Rome on another ship. And there he was put in prison. And there he's writing this letter. What's interesting is that Paul had always dreamed of a day that he could go to Rome, that he could go to Rome and preach the gospel. See, Rome was the cultural epicenter of the world at that time, and Paul wanted nothing more than for Christianity to take hold in Rome of all places, because then it could spread from there. But instead of getting to Rome on his own accord as a preacher, he arrived as a prisoner. God got him to Rome, but not in the way that he envisioned. And while he's sitting in that jail, waiting for trial, he had no idea which way the circumstances would fall. He knew he'd face trial, but, but he'd either be acquitted or beheaded. In the meantime, Paul was chained 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier, now, typically, these soldiers would rotate out every six hours, but there Paul is chained next to these four guys, a different one, every six hours, all day, every day. And yet, despite these circumstances, Paul wrote this book we now have called Philippians, which every theologian and scholar agrees has one major theme, and that's joy and optimism for life imprisoned and facing trial. No way of knowing how his life was going to turn out. How could someone live with such optimism and hope? Well, today I'm titling this message Defiant Optimism because it takes a certain level of defiance to live optimistically 
I just find it's easier to live pessimistically or cynically. In my personal experience, it's like hopping in the lazy river. Okay, you know the lazy river, the one that just floats along and you sit there in your inner tube just basking in the sun. See, the drift, the current, the flow of the news cycles and social media is negativity and cynicism. The world is terrible. Everything is terrible. Nothing is going to get better. It also, for whatever reason, seems to be somewhat of our natural disposition, maybe especially the older we get and the more life we live. So to live optimistically requires some, requires some defiance. It's like swimming upstream or going against the current. But it's with that kind of hope, that kind of defiant optimism that I believe God calls us to live. And so today, based on Paul's letter to the Philippians, I'd love to get us all asking four questions to live with defiant optimism. And the first question we can ask is, what good can God bring from this? Remember, Paul had plans. He had plans to go to Rome as a preacher on his own volition, on his own accord. Instead, God sent him as a prisoner. Let me ask you, has there ever been a time that God took you in a direction that you didn't intend to go or gave you circumstances that you never expected? I mean, if you've lived any life at all, I'm sure there have been moments like that. Maybe at this point, you, you had hoped to have been married by now. That was your plan. But God seems to have other plans. So now you're learning to enjoy life single. Maybe your career has not gone the direction that, that you had hoped. Maybe you thought you'd feel better after fill in the blank, but for whatever reason, God has seemed to do detour those plans once again, and now you're left wondering, how could God possibly bring any good from this? I want to take a look at Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14, and Paul writes this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. I mean, if we we really stop and think about it, this passage of scripture is remarkable. Paul is sitting in prison. He's in chains, but now he sees that he's in chains for Christ. Prisoners are being reached for Christ. Soldiers are coming to faith in Christ. People outside the walls People a part of the many churches he's helped establish are now reaching more people for Christ because of Paul's bold faith. Paul isn't stuck or languishing in chains, bumming about his present circumstances. No, he's in chains for Christ. And because of those chains, God is doing a good work, a better work even better than, than Paul could have imagined. As he said, his chains actually served to advance the gospel. So the question isn't, how could God ever bring any good from this? No, the question becomes with that hopeful lean, 
little vision. And what good could God bring from this? Now, maybe this feels cliche, but, but kids see the best of everything. Kids are inherently born with an ability to see a world of creative possibility and potential. My daughter, Marley, who's now eight, sees potential in boxes. Okay, boxes and packages of all shapes and sizes. Buy her a gift. Yeah, sure, she likes the gift, but she really wants to keep the box for whatever reason. She's always trying to salvage some kind of garbage to use for something else. Okay, just last week, I bought her cotton candy after her soccer game. It's my belief that all little girls should get cotton candy and a juice box after youth sporting events, okay? And if you know that little joke, it's good. But all, all little kids should get cotton candy. But when she was done with the cotton candy, here's the thing with Marley. She wanted to save that nasty little cardboard cone that the cotton candy came on. Why? She said she could use it as a telescope. Now, while we as parents spend most of our time throwing away the garbage that she's hoarded, I also know that someday Marley will, she'll grow up. And she'll no longer see the potential in everything like she does now. Someday, over time, she'll experience perhaps enough, well, enough negativity and, and bad circumstances that she'll lose her easy ability to see the good in everything. See, unfortunately, that, that can happen with all of us. Over time, with every negative thing that happens, and in this life, Bad things will happen, we know that. But what can happen to us is that our hearts harden a bit and we become a little more cynical, a little more jaded. Over time, it becomes more and more difficult to see the good that God can bring. Now notice I keep saying that God can bring the good. What if the good that we're trying to find is really not up to us? Instead, what if God is working to bring good in any and every circumstance, and our job is to just find it? Paul is so confident that God is bringing good in every situation and for every person that he writes, he who began a good work in you, yes, you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And in Romans 8, he writes, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. What a promise. Now, maybe today you're sitting there thinking, I can't possibly find the good in my situation. But if Paul can see his situation as not just being in chains, but now being in chains for Christ, I think God can help us see the good he wants to bring in our lives as well. Ask this question, what good can God bring in this? And then go find it. Second question to ask to live a life of defiant optimism is to ask, where is God working right now? I wanna show you what Paul writes in chapter one, verses 15 through 18. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. And here's this conclusion. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is 
preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Now, what's happening here? What's happening is that people were using Paul's situation of being imprisoned in Rome as an example to inspire faith in others. And it was working. As I mentioned, people were coming to faith in Christ in droves because God was using Paul's chains to advance the gospel. But according to people reporting back to Paul, some were preaching with impure motives. Maybe it was to, I don't know, build a bigger church for themselves or develop a better reputation or even earn more money. And while Paul doesn't condone their motives, he doesn't dismiss it as all bad either. Why? Because God was still working. Here's the thing. Cynics live with a general distrust of others and their motives. When a cynic sees someone do something good, maybe there's something in them that thinks, oh, they must be doing that good thing to you know, earn more money or show off or impress their mother-in-law or get more likes on social media, whatever it is. But optimists generally trust the motives of people who haven't done anything to lose that trust yet. Either way, because Paul was the ultimate defiant optimist, he was rejoicing regardless of motive because Christ was being preached. God was working. Henry Blackaby, who's the author of a book called Experiencing God, a, a book that has sold literally millions of copies, wrote something that has inspired us at Eaglebrook to remain passionate about expanding and reaching more people for Christ. He wrote these words, find out where God is working and join him. In other words, if there's a growing number of people who seem to be interested in matters of faith, a growing number of people who are excited about the mission of Eagle Brook, then we want to go where that excitement, where God is, seems to be doing something. So if people are getting excited about Eagle Brook and the mission of Eagle Brook and say Rochester, then we'll expand there. If we see that happen in Maplewood and Minneapolis, then we'll expand there, which we are this fall. If we see God working in Hawaii, which I'm convinced God is working in Hawaii, Jason, <laughs> then we'll go to Hawaii, okay? If you're watching, we'll, yeah, maybe not. But in a world today that, that appears to be, not always, but appears to be more anti-church, anti-Christian, we know as we pursue these things, we're going to face a growing cynicism about our motives and our mission. There are those who maybe think, some who say, we don't need another church. That city doesn't need you. Your church is just going to fail. Maybe they're right. But we choose to make decisions with a defiant, God-inspired optimism. Why? Because we see God working there, and then we want to join him. We don't want to get out ahead of him. We want to go where God is already working. For you, where in your life is God working and moving? It takes spirit-filled eyes to see where God is working. It's not always easy to spot, but to live with defiant optimism, ask God to open your eyes to the ways that he's working and then go there. What does that look like practically? Well, maybe you sense that God is working somewhere where you're supposed to move and you've got all the reasons why you shouldn't move, but if God is working there, then move. But maybe you sense that God is working right where you are. 
and there's something in you that doesn't want to stay. But if you sense that God is working right where you are, stay. Maybe you're sensing that there's been a person in your life you haven't fully been able to trust yet, but you see God working in their life that you can't deny. And if you see God working, go have that conversation with that person. Open your heart to them. This week, ask, where is God working right now? Helps us live with optimism to search where God is already working, then go there. Third question to ask to live with defiant optimism is to ask this, how can I lift someone else up? Paul writes in chapter two, verses three through four, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. One of the most practical things we can do to live with more optimism is, in fact, to think about ourselves less and others more. I mean, we become more cynical and jaded the more we obsess about our issues, our problems, and our circumstances. But when we stop to think about others, when we do something for someone else, it not only lifts them up, but it brings us out of our cynical spiral as well. I can imagine those poor soldiers that Paul was chained to. I mean, sure, Paul was chained to them, but they were chained to him. And I can imagine Paul, this optimist, got to know them personally. You know, their stories, their life histories, the names of their family members, even their issues and struggles. And then whether they wanted to hear it or not, he got to tell them about the greatest person who ever lived, the person who changed his life and transformed his heart, Jesus. He saw an opportunity to lift even those soldiers up. Later in Philippians, Paul bragged about one of his spiritual protégés, Timothy. He writes, I hope to send Timothy to you soon to the Philippian church. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know, you know that Timothy's different. See, Timothy has proved himself. Paul not only saw what kind of potential that Timothy had, but he also recognized that Timothy was now the kind of person who could lift others up too the kind of person that others want to be around, the kind of person that others want to be led by are those who lift them up, not weigh them down. Well, I'm a pastor and a teacher at this church. I'm also a leader. It's a, I'm a leader of a team of uh, five direct reports who oversee another 70, 75 others or so on our staff. And about a month ago, as I was reflecting on this subject, I wrote these words to my team in an email. I said, every day as leaders... We have a choice. In every conversation, team meeting, and interaction, we're either bringing people down with our cynicism or lifting others up with our positivity and optimism. It's either a weight we're putting on people, our pessimism, or it's a weight we're lifting off people, our optimism. Let's be people and leaders who lift that burden off others and bring positivity and optimism in every situation. Just as much as I was trying to inspire them, I was preaching to myself. Because leaders, if we lead with pessimism, our people will feel that burden. Our pessimism is literally putting our team and our workplace in chains. But if we lead with defiant optimism, 
they will feel unburdened and free to be more of who they were created to be. And maybe you're not a leader, but you're a parent, a spouse, a teammate, or a friend. Cynicism and optimism are so weighty and contagious that they have the potential to spread to everyone around you. One top-level leader I used to work with said he never wanted to hire emotionally draining people. Why? Because the emotionally pessimistic ones were such a burden to carry. So what kind of perspective are you going to spread? To live with defiant optimism, ask, how can I lift someone else up? First, do something practically for someone else. And not only will it lift them up, but it'll suck you out of that cynical spiral as well and lift you up. And second, choose to be an optimist because when you do, people won't feel that crushing weight of your pessimism. Fourth and final question to ask is this, how can I press on no matter the circumstance? Paul writes in Philippians 3, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He hasn't gotten there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And when I read these verses, I immediately thought of this video by this guy who ran the same speed but with different shoes. It's totally ridiculous. Take a look at this video really quickly. It's quite impressive. Ski boots. Doesn't matter. Flippers. <laughs> Slippers. That's impressive, flip-flops. High heels, come on. <laughs> Rubber chickens, just to top it off. <laughs> well, what I love about it, how it relates, is that no matter what kind of shoe he's wearing, he ran the same speed regardless, with the same posture, with his eyes up, looking forward and pressing on no matter what kind of circumstances that you are experiencing, run the same speed regardless. Keep your eyes up, focus on what's ahead, press on wherever you are at. We can all agree that not a single one of us are facing the exact same circumstances. Some of us are experiencing a difficult or wayward child at home. Others are struggling to make ends meet. Some are some are waiting for that phone call about what to do next medically. Others, for whatever reason, seem to have no problems at all. But whatever it is, no matter the circumstance, Paul lived a life where he pressed on by keeping his eyes on Jesus. That's why Paul could write these words, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I would love to be able to say those things about myself, too. Then he concludes, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What was the secret that Paul learned? Is that he could press on no matter the circumstances. 
that he could do all things. But why? Well, it was through him. It was because of Jesus. Jesus alone has the power to help us do all things, to press on no matter our circumstances. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, and if you have faith in his saving power, then you can too. Maybe today you showed up to be reminded of people like Catherine Wolfe, at 26, newly married with a brand new child, about to finish law school and find her dream job. She suffered a massive, nearly catastrophic stroke that upended her life. But since then, because of Jesus, she runs a nonprofit called Hope Heals that provides resources and encouragement to literally millions of people, to those who suffer. She's continued to press on. Or it's to be reminded of people like Jasper and Amanda Nephew, who have a daughter named Ruby who is diagnosed with adrenal cancer at 16 months. It's a genetic disorder that heightens the lifelong risk of the recurrence of cancer. This family faces monthly uncertainty over what's next. But because of Jesus, do you see the joy on their face? It's because of Jesus they continue to live with faith-filled optimism joy and hope and, and press on. Or maybe today you showed up just to be reminded of the story of Paul, who found himself wrongfully accused and imprisoned in chains, but found a way to press on and allow God to use his chains. Why? Because of Jesus. You want to live with defiant optimism? Here's, here's my challenge to you this week. The one takeaway is to read the book of Philippians this holiday week. There's four chapters, 104 verses. You can read one chapter a day or maybe just read the whole book every day. It'll take you 15 minutes at most. Most of you, 15 minutes. Some of you will take 45 minutes, but that's, you know, another story. But seriously, read Philippians and allow God to use Paul's story to inspire you to become a defiant optimist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you freely. Thank you for this church. This church is made up of people, imperfect people, but people doing their best to follow you and to chase after you. And I do pray, and um, I pray for those people who are dealing with really difficult circumstances where when you get them to reflect on what, what good could God possibly bring from this, it, it's, that's not easy. And, and I pray that you would give them spirit-filled eyes to see the ways that you are trying to break through, to shine a light in real dark places. And it's not to live pretending as if everything is okay when it's not. It's not to live pretending like you're happy when you're not. It's, it's to look for the ways that and maybe you are moving and shaking and stirring, causing things to, to change and, and disrupt God so that you can do a better work. I pray that you give us patience and courage and endurance to find the good, the good that maybe doesn't come until we experience you in eternity, but in this life, you are still working for the good of those who love you. And so I pray for people to endure and to see. 
I thank you for the life of Paul who continues to inspire us 2,000 years later despite his circumstances, writing a letter, a book we have now that's inspiring us to live a life of defiant optimism in a world that seems to be headed in a different direction. God, I pray that you would help us as people who love you and know you. I pray that you would help us to be people of hope, people of optimism, people of defiant joy. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you want prayer, we'll have a prayer team down front. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.